Hi there, and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. Today, we are incredibly honored and blessed to have a very special guest joining us, Makato Fujimura. Mako is a world-renowned artist, thinker, catalyst, author. He is the author of Refractions, Silence and Beauty, Hidden Faith, Born of Suffering, and Culture Care, Reconnecting with Beauty for Our Common Life, and his forthcoming book from Yale University Press, Theology of Making. He is also the founder of the International Arts Movement and the Fujimura Institute, and involved with a number of exciting projects, uh, including his YouTube videos, Live from Mako Studio, which are (laughs) wonderful, and most recently, the Hillary Teachout Grant. And actually, Mako, could you tell us some more about that project in particular? Yes, uh, great to be here, and thank thank you for asking me about that. It uh, it, it is a uh, significant effort I have been focused on lately. And um, as it turns out, during this COVID nineteen crisis, I have spoken to many of my friends who are in performing arts, including classical musicians, and come to find out that they're rather in desperate situation. Um, I have a good friend, Jia Kim, who uh, is a world-renowned classical cellist, and um, where she teaches at Juilliard. But when Juilliard was shut down, uh, she had no income because all the concerts venues dried up as well. And there's no guarantee for these musicians at all. Broadway obviously shut down and, you know, there's no contingency plan for a lot of these um, performance artists, especially in theater as well. So I began to think of a way to address that. I, I founded a nonprofit uh, international arts movement, which is I Am Culture Care now. And uh, I talked to the board about possibly setting up a system where if, if we can have people donating into the fund, can create my micro-granting system. And while they were setting that up, I, I heard the sad news of my, my good friend, Terry Teachout, whose wife, Hillary, has been looking for a lung, uh, double lung transplant. And unfortunately, it happened right during this crisis and things didn't go well, uh, and she passed away. And during uh, this time of grief for him, I began to connect these dots, and I thought, I asked Terry whether it would be appropriate to name this grant after his uh, wife, uh, Hillary, and uh, he was delighted that we could honor her in some way. Uh, so we launched this about a week and a half ago, and, and we have raised over $30,000, wow. which is remarkable uh, wow. for a time as such as this. And uh, yeah, it shows uh, both the need and the response. Uh, the need is even greater than that. Uh, we have doubled the applicants uh, that, that can receive these micrograms. So we have asked people to continue to apply because I'm hopeful we can raise more funds and keep going. And maybe this can be a legacy long-term for people in memory of Hillary, uh, who was an avid arts advocate, and uh, with Terry Teachout, who's the Wall Street Journal uh, theater critic and their friend. Uh, so so I, I, I'm pleased about that. We, uh, we sent out our first check and, uh, checks, and so many of these artists will receive a very small amount, but less than $500, but, but it's, it's still a sign of encouragement to them to keep going, and more importantly, to, to be connected with a wider network of people who care about culture and who care about them. 
that's such an encouraging story to hear the response and outpouring when right before everything shut down around March 8th or so I was walking down Pennsylvania and I was in front of like Hank's Oyster Bar or something like that and I had a conversation with this random fellow and he was saying you know I'm actually really interested to see what art comes out after Mm. this and Mm. what artists do in response to this Mm. pandemic and then also some people have talked about the Spanish flu and the way that there wasn't any, at least I've heard some people say, I'd love to get your thoughts on, there wasn't any major art that came out as a result of the Spanish flu in the States. So what are you as an artist yourself, how are you responding to this? How are you using this time? Um, how is isolation affecting this? I know in, in culture care, you talk, you tell that story about Brever Childs and that go deeper is what he advises one of his students and that to go deeper, we have to be in community. So how do you think it's going to affect art and after COVID-19 is over and how are artists responding in the moment? Yeah, each crisis uh, brings its own challenges. Uh, uh, Spanish flu certainly was a confluence of World War One and Two, So th- there were traumas that, that, is, um, that lingered on into certain works of art. Um, certainly around that time, you, you can name so many artists who, whose work was in response to trauma. We, we think of J.R. Tolkien in front lines of World War I, C.S. Lewis, and uh, Story of Narnia is literally children being quarantined, <laughs> in a sense, you know, in, 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 the, in um, finding that wardrobe. We think about T.S. Eliot writing The Wasteland. Mm. We, we think about Hemingway, you know, and so there are lots of examples so not specific to Spanish flu, but we lost a lot of artists during Spanish flu, including Gaston Clint and uh, Egon Schiele, two, two major, major figures in, in art, uh, visual art. And, and so these things do leave a mark in, in our culture. And that is an interesting to, thing to ponder, you know, when um, Shakespeare wrote, King Lear during the Black Plague, and uh, Frangelico was painting, um, and you know, in, in his monastery, painting away these beautiful images while one third of the population was perishing. So, you know, what what was happening there? I, I'm I'm always uh, interested in those things, and there are major discoveries, uh, you know, made uh, because people have more time to really just uh, step back and think about deeper issues. I suspect that this will be a time when artists, uh, if they allow uh, this to go in deep, and my friend, uh, Amanda Lindsay Cook, uh, you know, uh, Bethel fame, she she just released a a song last night, uh, which is uh, is a beautiful song uh, about finding hope in in darkness and she was texting me earlier about the interior journey that she's been on being isolated and writing uh, music and writing writing period uh in her life and and she uh, was curious to see what i was doing in my studio and i was basically sharing with her that you know my work has stayed fairly consistent because I, I'm always self-isolating myself as an artist and and um, it's, it hasn't changed the rhythm of what I do. The impact certainly has changed, uh, you know, thinking about 
uh, Terry's situation and others who are suffering in my beloved city of New York City, um, which uh, still I have deep attachment to people and, and the city there. So <laughs> I, I think my work certainly will reflect uh, as it has in the past. Uh, you, you know, intuitive things happen without the artist being able to articulate. Uh, it, it just grows out of uh, your time. So both my writings and my art has always been in response to issues at hand. Um, I'm trying to push that into new creation, which, which is the thesis of my next book, is Theology of New Creation, you know, Theology of Making. So, so these, these are things that um, I care deeply about, and I, I have been more than usual focused on... Um, both writing and art, you know, creating art that is true and authentic to our time. Kind of leaning into uh, some of the the themes out of your your book, Culture Care. I think one thing that really struck out and, and hit me was was your conversation about utilitarian pragmatism, sort of mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. a theme that that runs in our culture right now, and especially with coronavirus. Uh, impacting so many people. I really mm-hmm. think that people are going to be driven out of this with a lot of pragmatic questions about how do I mm-hmm. sure. limit the resources that I have and how, you know, things like that. But mm-hmm. I would love for you to sort of talk about okay. why is now a great time to be investing in the art? Absolutely. And uh, it's it's funny how we tend to think about scarcity model, uh, kind of this survival model, you know, accentuated in, in such a time as this, we, we, we have to think about that, you know, war times and after 9-11, you, you think that all we can think about is survival and, and there's certainly reality to that. There are frontline realities and, and there's uh, realities of what, rest of us go go through and yet i find it in extreme circumstances there are poignant moments where um, you uh, you draw into you perhaps your your senses or your you draw into your longings in a new way you ask yourself what's really important and uh, those are moments when i find in the past things come alive and uh, clarifying way. And I don't know if this is the case of everyone, but but certainly for artists that I know and for, for myself, you know, scarcity, yes. Uh, survival, yes. You, you have to um, be able to have the luxury of thinking about these things. But beyond that, you know, once we go through crisis and trauma, we do ask ourselves the deeper reality meaning about what just happened and why in in some ways you know i i certainly had a sense of kind of a survivor's guilt after 9-11 i lived three blocks away i didn't know if we would survive that day uh, and we did and uh, that's to be praised and and celebrated but there is this deep depression that you go through several months after where all the adrenaline runs out and you you are basically left with yourself to think about 
you know, what does it all mean now? And I, I noticed that there was a lot of my friends who are artists uh, inside and outside the church wrestling with deeper issues, depression, certainly, and, and other things that came upon them sometimes suddenly. And I anticipate that this crisis will lead into a time when almost university, right? This is a very unique uh, situation, uh, certainly larger than 9-11 in, in terms of immediate impact. There's no one on earth who have not been impacted by this virus in some way. Uh, so that's troubling when you think about it, That and, and it's universal curse that's been put upon us. But on the other hand, it is a uh, universal uh, common experience that that we can draw into and i wonder for us to be talking about this even in this podcast is an indication that we have a new kind of uh, awareness and new new way of even communicating using technology and so forth that can uh, address these longings common longings that we have toward the future and this time even though scarcity is, you know, uh, immediate to us, maybe the most important time to be thinking about those things together. And uh, when I address uh, utilitarian pragmatism, I am speaking of a general uh, ways that we we have assumed and presumed, presumed that you know, culture is a battleground that we have to fight over because we our territories are shrinking. And that kind of mindset, uh, first of all, I, I, I wrote Theology of Making as an undergirding theology book to culture care because the pragmatism, uh, utilitarian pragmatism that, that has been so per- pervasive in, in Washington, D.C. And, and other places, have decimated the kind of rich conversation that we can be having with each other, uh, whether you're conservative or liberal, you know, what stripe you, uh, you are. And, um, and that ha- is to the detriment of a way that we can understand our time, understand. And, and so even though, you know, it, it is a zero-sum game of scarcity model, uh, utilitarian pragmatism is rampant in days of abundance. <laughs> that that's the irony. And when things are stripped away, like we are now, we might have a better chance at speaking about our commonalities and and you know needs that we have to certainly help each other get through this time. But but also to think broadly about what are we fighting for. And is it something like a territory, shrinking territory to defend? Or is it a garden to tend to together? Or an ecosystem to take care of together for the future generations? Those are questions that I think is, um, you know, rapidly or in a, in a way, uh, in a very healthy way, uh, we, we can uh, be the, uh, having a conversation about today. In culture care, you say exactly that, which I um, I found so encouraging, especially in this time. Robert and I were talking about it yesterday and felt like it was just kind of um, 
like a cool drink of water for our souls. Mm. It felt so nourishing mm. and replenishing. And I would love, I'm very, we're both very excited about your upcoming book, Theology of Making, and would love to hear what themes have you taken from culture care and mm. how has that built, uh, been a foundation so you can build to the, the latest project you're working on? Yeah, thanks. Um, so Culture Care is a book that was compiled over time when I was on the National Council on the Arts, appointed by President Bush uh, to be in D.C. as a citizen uh, helping with the disbursement of National Endowment for the Arts funding. And uh, if you were around Washington, D.C. Uh, in those days, you know, it was really at the height of culture wars where, you know, people wanted to defund um, NEA and so forth. And that voice still continues to linger, but it is not on the, you know, front lines, as it were. Uh, whereas back then when Dana Joya, poet and business executive, came in to take on the mantle of uh, being the chair of National Endowment. You know, he, he was literally told by one conservative senator that you are the uh, sacrificial lamb to the altar of culture wars. <laughs> we're going to eliminate the agency and you're going to help us. And that's why we're appointing you. <laughs> and Dana being Dana, uh, uh, any, anybody who wants to learn about efficient and, uh, and good leadership in government, you should study what Dana did in those uh, six, uh, seven years. He has turned the agency around. Uh, he has made it one of the most productive, efficient, government agencies in DC uh, to to the extent that the people who came after him could not change what the programs that he instituted because they were so successful and they were so in needed for America the, the arts as as a way to come together and and for these uh, you know no matter what constituency you have in various locations everybody, can benefit from a governmental leadership and culture, just as we need uh, leadership in, in, in preserving uh, the land use or uh, national parks. We, we desperately need leadership to uh, really use the funding effectively the most, most, most effective way. And I've, I've learned a lot from him. And during those times, I began to lecture as part of my uh, duties to serve Dana and, and NEA and began to speak about arts advocacy in different arenas. This was mostly outside of church. So I translated much of what I believe um, as a believer, uh, as a leader in, into a wider public, public arena. And I had to kind of name what I was doing. And uh, uh, one of my editors suggested, well, you should lecture on cultural care rather than cultural wars, because that's what you're doing uh, with Dana in DC. And I, what I saw Dana doing was an effective leadership in caring for culture rather than fighting over uh, them. And even, even the defense advocacy of the arts, right? The, why we need the arts, why we need poetry in a time of crisis in, you know, post 9-11 uh, time. Th those are the 
kind of the cues that I took to expand culture care lectures. And each, so each chapter is a lecture. And, and so you can take one chapter and, you know, talk about them uh, in, in the book. Now, what I didn't do in culture care book was to outline and identify what theological strands that formed it. In each lecture, what I did was I took certain theological principles and I translated it into wider culture because my theology allows me to do that, to expand the understanding of the good news, uh, the gospel uh, of, of the Bible, and, and expand that into an abundant blessing. You know, when Jesus stood in the hills of Galilee, he was not just invoking you know, I have come to save you uh, message, which is primarily the redemptive message that we hear in the church. That's not wrong. It's just that's not all he did. He was invoking the abundance of God's creation and reminding people that we must love our enemies because if you consider the lilies of the field and if you look at the birds of the air, God is reminding us of the abundant reality of creation being invoked by, by you know, Jesus, uh, bringing this kingdom into a new creation, right? So, so that, that's the message of culture care, but I don't necessarily talk about that because I can't assume that everybody speaks, um, you know, theological language. So what I did was as I was writing these culture care lectures, I would write a, a second thing uh, that I never released, which is about all about the theology behind why I will advocate for dance and theater and poetry and why we, we need more than survival to be a human being in a society that is uh, vibrant. Um, and and those, those things became my new, new book, Theology of Making, which, by the way, is only one-third of the entire Thing that I had written uh, up to this point. So um, we consolidated it for, as a kind of introduction to uh, theology making. You also talk about common grace and mm-hmm. the, this doctrine of common grace in the world. And you work with Kintsugi, this Japanese artistic mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and I think it also perhaps is connected to the, the generative principle you're mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. as well. Yes. Um, I mean, broadly, how does common grace and kintsugi coming from a Japanese mm-hmm. context mm-hmm. interact with each other? And how is kintsugi, especially now, a means to convey the gospel of mm-hmm. God mm-hmm. redeeming yeah. that which is broken uh, and making yeah. something new, the newness, right. the yeah. new newness, as you said. Yeah, new newness, yes. So kintsugi is a venerable for uh, Japanese um, art of mending broken uh, bowls and ceramics. Uh, it flowed out of the tea tradition, um, notably in 16th century Senrikyu. Rikyu was the primary innovator of uh, Japanese art of tea, and that influenced every part of Japanese culture, uh, including today. And um, you can trace all the major art forms, theater, poetry, you know, how Japanese aesthetic is formed was dominantly impacted by Likyu's um, philosophy and aesthetic. 
Kintsugi, even though it's not directly attributed to him, uh, this idea of mending broken teaware with Japan lacquer and gold, um, it came out of Japan lacquer tradition, which is is a uh, craft that takes years of practice to master. Um, unfortunately, one third of the population is highly allergic to Japan lacquer, and it takes a year to dry, and it has to be um, it has to dry in moisture of Japan. So, so it's a very uh, highly um, fine uh, technique. So what happened with me was as I began to talk about Kintsugi as an example, I have a chapter in my new book called Kintsugi Theology. When I talk about new creation, it, it just makes sense to bring in Kintsugi as an idea because the, the mended Kintsugi bowl is more valuable than the original which speaks a lot of how the Japanese sees um, this venerable craft form. In recent times in Japan, this awareness has gone down. So even the Japanese didn't know much about their own tradition. So when I began to talk about it, I found a few people who still practice Kintsugi. And one person, uh, Master Nakamura in Tokyo, when we connected because I was filming and I wanted to film a Kintsugi master doing his task. So my assistant found him. And we went to his uh, workshop and we filmed him actually doing Kintsugi. But he kind of surprised us uh, by saying, you know, instead of me doing Kintsugi, um, I want you to do it. <laughs> and I'm going to teach you how to do this. And I said, well, I, I know Japan lacquer. I mean, that, that's like, you know, poisonous and it takes years of practice to learn to handle and use. And he said, yeah, I know. And uh, that's why I have created a new way new lacquer, new Japan lacquer based on cashew nuts so so that it dries in about an hour and a half and uh, anybody can learn to do this. And and I asked him, why did you did you come up with this? You know, Kintsugi is like a secret tradition. And he said, well, after 3-11, uh, 2011 tsunami, I felt the need to go up to the affected areas where they would hold fishing village were washed away and there were orphans in uh, grade schools. Um, I, I wanted to bring Kintsugi to them and not only bring it to them as a Kintsugi master, I wanted to teach them how to do this themselves. And so this whole technique, he literally has a medicine uh, doctor's bag where he sticks his kits inside and he carries to these affected areas and he shares the technique of Kintsugi and have, have the victims, uh, families participate in doing Kintsugi themselves. And when I saw that, I was so intrigued by the possibility of this becoming a way for us to find healing in, in our own fractures and our own journeys uh, of pain that I brought it, uh, tested it in Nashville, New York, and Princeton and LA and found this to be uh, the, the most powerful way that people can experience heating, heating and, um, and you, you do not 
need any experience in craft of any kind uh, to do this. Uh, and so we're right now, even though we can't meet together, um, you know, we're anticipating a time when 10 people can gather. And uh, so I'm training leaders uh, in various locations to be able to run and to give workshops. And uh, so we are designing a kit and um, we, we should be ready by May to begin to do some of these workshops. You know, common grace is, is an important theological principle in reformed circles of understanding that God sends sun and rain to good and, and evil uh, people, and God is a uh, God of grace. Um, so there's common grace that can be shared uh, whether you're a Christian or whether you, you know, it, it doesn't matter what uh, religion you profess to be or if you don't have any sort of identity with religious practice, God is uh, still able to bring blessing into their lives. Now, the reality of this, and I write about this in Theology of Making, is common grace is also common curse. You know, sun shining on people can be good or it can, it can be to the detriment. Uh, um, you know, rain uh, is good, but too much rain can cause a lot of damage. So during the COVID crisis, we're seeing common curse being, you know, shared among the common experience of pain and uh, self-isolation being experienced by the world. And I think that's, that can lead to grace, grace experience, because we can learn to uh, identify with those who may be very different from us, uh, rather than the typical way that humans react toward uh, exclusion we can move toward embracing those people because they have suffered in the same way that we have. And that can lead to common grace experience where we can assume that even if culture is alien to us and it's maybe even opposite of what we project to be something that is worthwhile to explore, uh, there is still God's imprint, God's fingerprint on those cultures. And, and unless we are willing to journey there to understand and listen well and learn from these uh, other practices, we will not unlock the, the key. We will not have the key to unlock the um, vast treasures that God has hidden in these cultures. So that's, that's the principle of culture. It obviously links to culture care because we, rather than fighting culture wars to demonize the other side, we can be looking at common grace as a way, entry, to invite and host others who may, may be different from us. It, it sounds like uh, your analogy of the estuary is mm-hmm. yeah. similar to that. And yes. For the average Christian in the pews and who definitely looks at creation and sees it as God's beauty, but maybe is not sure yeah. where to look right now, is not yeah. sure where to find beauty in a time of brokenness. Mm-hmm. How would you encourage and advise us to to see the world hopefully as not something to tear down and be cynical about, but something mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is being renewed. Yeah. So I've been doing these daily YouTube, uh, you know, video casts from my studio <laughs> that you see, and I have set up a studio inside a studio 
and, and I, I talk about two things. One, one is that we can create beauty and uh, appreciate them ourselves. Uh, all of us are artists. We are created to be creative. We are, I always say we are artists until third grade and somebody tells us we're not and we believe them. But, you know, in such a time as this, we may draw back to simple acts of creation, whether it be just cooking something yourself or, you know, picking up an instrument that you let go for a long time or, you know, these things are making is hard. So, so we, you know, it, it's not like you can pick up something and do, do it right away, but, but the daily act of practice can, can lead to a rich vein of discoveries. And so I, talk about making on one side, but the other side uh, is really about being able to see and receive what is remarkable mystery all around us um, that exists in each other. Certainly, you know, we're, we, uh, if you have children now, you know, it's like you're, uh, you're stuck with, you know, the entire family being home and homeschooling and so forth and, yeah. and, and the challenges of that, right? Um, I remember after 9-11 do, doing that for many months and finding, finding myself exhausted. And I, I just, you know, instead of like focusing on math, you know, I kind of said, let's go to the studio. You know, I had studio about 10 blocks away. So we would just migrate to the studio and they would just paint with me. They would just make art with me. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I just realized like, why, why didn't I think of this before? Because first of all, they, they love the experience, you know, and, and, and I don't remember anything in terms of math and sciences I taught them. <laughs> you know, during that time, but I remember those times when I painted with them. And so things that we make s- tends to be more enduring. And of course, you remember the how Greenwich Street felt like walking up to the studio together. Uh, you don't forget those experiences of the sunset that you saw over Ground Zero. Uh, as the smokes were still smoldering, you know, and uh, conversations that you had with your children about that. Those things you will never, you know, forget. And, and so somehow the senses can open up in times like this. If we can slow down and if we can kind of let go of what we want uh, to control and let the world speak to us um, in her own terms, you know, that, that we might perhaps have forgotten to listen to in, in our busyness of nine to five, you know, lives of survival. And um, we, I think these, these times can be a time of deep conversation, that, which, which is a gift uh, that, that, that we will never forget. You know, we, of course, it's hard. Every day is, you know, filled with anxiety and fear, right? So, uh, it's not easy to do that. It takes it takes faith actually to take every day as a gift and and to let the world uh, speak to you in a way that you know our hearts are longing for and made for, but we perhaps have forgotten uh, how to listen. Thank you for that. My um, grandfather, my mom's dad, was an oil painter. Oh wow he uh, his studio was upstairs 
uh, on the second floor of my grandparents' house. And I will never, you, you mentioned the sensory experience of mm -hmm. art being made. And I will never forget opening that door, that heavy wooden door and smelling the oil paints and, yeah, the, paint open time. and the brushes yeah. being cleaned and the yeah. music he listened to um, yeah. and the, the frames wow. he made. And, and wow. um, it's just very rich. It's, yeah. it's very deep. Well, that, that is your Narnia experience, isn't it? You know, that's what I think Lewis was getting to, um, and especially in times of enormous stress and scarcity. Uh, children have a way of taking in that perspective and opening up that wardrobe and walking in to an uh, entire new world. Um, and and we have we all have that capacity. You know, we have been told that that's childish or whatever. You know, you know, imagination is not something that, especially in the church, we have learned to cultivate well. Um, and yet it is the most important part of faith. And, and we, we need to understand the connection between your experience of going up to your grandfather's uh, studio and our journey of faith, uh, which is like that, which is like going up and seeing God, the artist, operate in the world in ways that we can't even fathom. But we we take in the aroma, you know, and, and there is this fundamental reality, essence of that reality that we need as children of God to move into a world, you know, um, that, that is, that is food, lacking in that sense of beauty, imagination, and thriving. What would be your advice then to church leaders? How do you again, culture care talks about this, that artists helping the leaders open that wardrobe and mm. show the congregants what's inside mm. this yeah. The yeah. apocalyptic act actually of mm. revealing what's going on behind mm -hmm. the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what's the connection you think there and how can church leaders do that well? Yeah, I love the use of the word apocalypse as a revealment rather than, you know, end times. You know, Christianity is, is, um, is a faith journey toward newness. And so it, it, the Bible is not a book about endings. The Bible is all, all, has always been a book about new beginnings. And so, you know, we as church leaders, and, and I, I have spoken to many pastors, this has been a difficult time for them. It's a huge challenge for socially driven people, uh, not like myself, who is an uh, introvert, you know, uh, to, to have to deal with empty pews and, and in Easter that is not really congregation gathering. And I tell them that, you know, I, I remember after 9-11, people flocked to churches but we weren't ready. Uh, we, they saw the same kind of fragmentations that they see in the church, uh, they see in the world, uh, amplified in the church. Uh, it's the most segregated hour of the week. It's, it's, you know, it's, we're fighting culture wars. Uh, we're scared and we're filled with fear and anxiety, even more than the world sometimes. And I tell them, you know, there's 40 days of Lent toward Easter, but there's also 40 days of post-resurrection journey, which is, if you read about scripture passages, those are 
pretty chaotic. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you, you see Jesus, uh, resurrected Jesus, and you're not, you can't recognize him. You know, he <laughs> breaks bread and your eyes are open and, and then he disappears. Um, you know, Peter is told to go back uh, back home uh, and he's fishing and he can't catch anything you know and then he sees the resurrected Christ and he has that encounter with Jesus that restores him but then in, in the midst of that restoration he is challenged Peter you, you're going you know your love has to be more than uh, just friendship and having a relationship with me your love is going to be agape the the sacrificial love that you're going to have to lead and then he's taken to Japa and have that crazy dream and so so this is this is a really really strange uncertain time and and as an artist I see that and I, I get excited right I'm like wow you know dreams matter and and you know these crazy paradigm shifts where things are upside down those those things you know I I kind of love that, those those stories and and yet the church doesn't really talk about them because we, you know we have just celebrated Easter and hallelujah you know Jesus is risen and and then we can we can go fix the world well <laughs> wait a minute you know there, there is a lot to the post-resurrection journey that we have to learn from and this crazy time is the perfect medium perfect experience for pastors to reconsider what the church ought to be like after uh, COVID-19 crisis is over after this pandemic, there's going to become a time when people will be seeking spiritual direction. They may not flock to churches like they did after 9-11, but they will certainly be seeking guidance and, you know, a way of understanding ourselves, having gone through this time, and then recalibrating what is really important for individual leaders, but also for the church in general. Like what's most important for the future of the church, future generations, people who are looking for not necessary answers, but authentic communities um, that they can belong to and ask these questions that, that came up during this time and, or, you know, issues that came up, uh, brokenness that you've, you experience. Uh, there's going to be a lot of need for counseling a lot of need to process what happened, even if you didn't get the illness, uh, even if you recovered from COVID-19, uh, you have a lot of psychological damage. So, you know, is that something that is stigmatized and ignored in the church? Or is that like Kintsugi, something that we can honor uh, and behold as fragments that are beautiful, right? And not, not trying to fix it. Kintsugi uh, families of tea masters who hold on to the fragments of tea bowls will most of the time they don't mend it right away. They wait two, three generations before they give it to a Kintsugi master because they know that trauma, most traumas are not, you can't fix it. You can't, you know, grow out of it. You have to hold on to it and you have to find some way of beholding the beauty of the fragment that you are and and once you can do that then the trauma you know therapy can begin but uh, most of us want things to be fixed we want to go back to where we were but 
you know, Christianity is a journey of newness. So it's through those fractures, new way of being a Christ follower will come out. Churches, leaders need to be, pastors need to be ready for that and, and having gone through that transformation themselves. What piece of art right now are you working on that, speaking of passing down through generations, that, mm. that you're most looking forward to releasing in the upcoming months? Yeah, so I've been working on my my work as usual. I, I have done started these works, and they they take like six months to complete. So you know, um, new ones will arise out of this time, and and I've been thinking a lot about that rather than kind of a one to one response to our current situation. I think I I am more inclined to think about the new new creation and what that means and and how I can, um, even as an artist, um, I always say artists are futurists, you know, we, we can create and invoke the future into the invisible being made visible. And so that that is also a work of faith. You know, Christians need to be futurists uh, to, to be able to invoke the new, the, to welcome the feast now in, in our battle with scarcity and, um, you know, the survival game that we have to fight. Christians are the ones that can see uh, the future and celebrate the cosmic wedding to come, you know, so, so those, those are the themes that, that I'll be invested in. I'm working on a series of Psalms, uh, in collaboration with Dr. Aaron Davis at Duke, who, uh, is a good friend. And, um, I, I've been going through the Psalms, one Psalm per month, one, you see, you see this square painting in the back, 48 by 48, uh, size. So it's going to take me a long time to do that. You know, I, that like 13 more years I'll be doing this. So, um, but I, I, I want to slow down and I want to really take in what the world is offering at this moment and continuing to create beauty uh, and speak about mercy in a new way. Well, thank you so much for your time. I feel you. enormously enriched and blessed and um, very grateful. Uh, I'll continue to be checking out your YouTube videos as well. Okay. Uh, they are very life-giving and thank uh, you. encouraging and affirming. Thank you, Mako, and thank you for listening. You can follow Mako on Twitter at IamFujimura and his YouTube channel. Make sure to check out IamCultureCare.com to learn more about the Hillary Teachout Grant. And thanks again for listening to The Will and Rob Show. You can follow us on Twitter at R.D. Hassler and Stockdale Will. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and we will see you all next week.